Welcome to the Growing Rural Podcast, where we focus on all things rural in South Carolina. We will discuss topics on healthcare, economy, education, and the unique culture that is our rural state. This podcast is supported by the South Carolina Center for Rural and Primary Healthcare. Please join us for today's topic. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Growing Rural Podcast. I'm your host today, Dr. Kevin Bennett. Our guest today is Dr. Nick Patel. Nick is the Chief Digital Officer within Prisma Health here in South Carolina, as well as the Vice Chair of Clinical Affairs in the Department of Internal Medicine within the School of Medicine in Columbia. Welcome, Nick. Great to be here, Dr. Bennett. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, you know where you grew up and how you came to be uh, this Chief Digital Officer here. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was uh, born in England, actually, in Preston, England. And in December 1979, we uh, came to the U.S. And um, we moved to a very small town called Hemingway, South Carolina. It's about a three traffic light town off Highway 41. Some people go past to go on their way to the beach, Myrtle Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, my parents bought a hotel there. It's a mom and pop hotel. And, hmm. um, yeah, I went to school all the way from kindergarten through uh, high school there. Did a short stint in uh, the summer program, governor's school. Um, but uh, from there, you know, I unfortunately, when I was small, I got sick a lot. Uh, I had pneumonia twice and had a lot of ear infections. And I just remember... My dad, not knowing uh, South Carolina very well, would actually drive me all the way back to Charlotte where we landed because he didn't know that there was hospitals around the area. Right. And um, eventually I remember there was a family doctor that opened shop in Johnsonville, which is four miles away. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he was just a great guy, uh, wonderful uh, you know, rapport with the patient and bedside manner. And I just remember um, that's where I think I first fell in love with medicine because I remember how he gave me medicine and made my ear pain go away. Mm-hmm. And he also educated me on why I had an earache. And hmm. and so for my love for science started there and I uh, kind of was a science and math nerd through, through high school and it um, eventually went to USC Honors College. Uh, um, and uh, went to, as was pre-med, and went to med school in Charleston, uh, class of 02. And uh, I did one year as med peds in Orlando Regional um, after medical school uh, because I, my parents had moved there and retired there right after medical school. My brother was out there. Okay. And so it's ima- it just imagine moving from a very, very small town to a very large city. Right. Uh, it was interesting. But yeah, from there, uh, my, my wife uh, got a great job back in Columbia and we uh, we moved back. She was in uh, did a lot of work with the state house and, and legal there and uh, finished my last two years of residency here at USC in Columbia and uh, became a hospitalist right out of the gate. Uh, was one of the original six hospitalists at the group at, at Richland and Baptist. We have uh, 130 of us now there. Wow. Um, And then eventually I went from that to outpatient medicine. I found that uh, when I was a hospitalist and I did some, uh, you know, some uh, PRN shifts in the emergency room uh, as an internal medicine physician, I always found there's so many patients that we admitted or saw came in for things that were avoidable because they Mm -hmm. didn't have a primary care doctor. And I was always complaining about that. So I said, well, let me stop complaining and actually go become a primary care doctor. So for the last 12 years, I've actually been a internal medicine primary care doctor in the northeast portion of columbia and i grew that practice from two providers to now uh 12 at that particular practice and then multiple other locations um i went into uh, technology i've always been a techie by heart mm-hmm. um had a commodore 64 and everything in between oh, since yeah. i was i had one of those too yeah that fostered that you probably haven't heard Commodore 64 mentioned in a long time. No, I have not. Uh, I, and, I remember pining for the disk drive so I could save my programs. That's right, right? Big, long disk drive yep, that we used yep. to have. And, uh, yeah, so from there, I actually uh, found that uh, when we went to an EHR, we lost two providers because they were so unhappy. Mm. Uh, they saw their productivity drop. They, mm-hmm. Their frustration was uh, growing almost every day. They were spending longer time at the office. And I did a process improvement project 
uh, I did a time-based study of how long it takes a person coming in for a routine 15 minute visit to go through one uh, visit through a practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found that uh, the bottlenecks were some things that happened in the front desk area, as well as the logging in and logging out of computers as you went in and out of rooms. Mm -hmm. And um, eventually, long story short on that, uh, discovered uh, a, a device called Microsoft Surface that had just come out. It was different than an iPad in that it had a full OS in it and I could put Citrix on it and I could actually use the EHR going room to room instead of logging in and out. It saved quite a bit of time. Hmm. And then next thing you know, a whole bunch of providers bought it uh, on their, with their own money like I did. And mm -hmm. we started an internal study uh, on that and uh, eventually told Microsoft about it. And Microsoft was really happy about it. And we did a large uh, study, about 40, 50 devices, and showed that um, the efficiency it brought and that productivity increased, documentation time was reduced, and, uh, and, and providers were happier. And, and so from there, eventually, uh, you know, again, um, wanted to do a lot of optimization product projects. Eventually, when we formed the medical group, became their uh, executive director of medical informatics. Hmm. And then when we became Prisma about three to four years ago, the CEO asked me what I wanted to do. And I, I had heard about a new role called the chief digital officer, and it really fit me very well mm -hmm. based on my background and what I wanted to do. And uh, so I've been chief digital officer for the last three plus years now. So, and that, and that's a really fascinating story because you're essentially a physician in the field seeing patients and now you are essentially in charge of the digital footprint for Prisma. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so the, it's interesting. So if you remember when the high tech act occurred during the Obama administration mm -hmm. uh, to go to electronic health systems, um, couple of roles really expanded and grew and, and were even new roles, net new roles. One was the CMIO role, the chief medical informatics officer, mm -hmm. uh, who really was a physician lead who under, needed to understand workflow uh, so that you can optimize the electronic health system. And then you had IT, which historically was telephony and computers right. that grew their role to networking and other solutions, um, infrastructure, et cetera. But there was no one really in between that handled, looked at the bigger picture of how everything kind of fit together mm -hmm. beyond the electronic health system where you're just entering data and, and looking at data versus what was that patient experience look like? What the mm -hmm. consumer experience looks like? What are those alternative means of delivering care such as virtual or telehealth or digital health? What are those things around data? What's the data strategy? What is the overall automation strategy? So what the chief digital officer kind of does is tries to bring um, informatics, IT, and consumer experience and big data together. Okay. Um, and, and part of that is really modernizing how we deliver healthcare. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that, by modernizing healthcare. Yeah, so as chief digital officer, you know, I help lead digital health strategy to form a seamless digital continuum of services that include enhanced virtual visits. So that mm -hmm. means doing a video visit, but also being able to physically examine a patient uh, using a, a wearable device, mm. um, remote patient monitoring, automation, but also how do we actually do outreach to patients? Mm. Uh, you know, how do we campaign to close care gaps through texting, things of that nature? All those capabilities are not inherently available within the electronic health system. Right. And and so it's taking what we know as the source of truth, which is the electronic health system and understanding those care gaps, but being able to do outreach to the patient in a way that they are used to nowadays, which is more by texting or, or nudges on your smartphone mm -hmm. or through email uh, on a large scale. So instead of having one by one person, but really trying to understand and capture health at a population level um, and being able to use technology to do that outreach. And we do that in three areas, ambulatory, uh, acute, which is more the uh, how does a person navigate through the health system uh, how do they find their room? How do we know when the room is clean or not clean? So how does that, you know, using real-time location tracking, uh, using beaconing, understanding how does a person navigate? So if you have a loved one coming to see you, hospital systems are 
large multi-building centers. Uh, How do you navigate there? So being able to put that on your phone and then actually not only navigate to the building, but able to see within the building where which elevator you need to take and and actual uh, hallway by hallway navigation of Mm -hmm. that person. Um, And then there's the EICU piece, which is being able to uh, take care of larger uh, folks, uh, group of folks uh, remotely by monitoring data and those wearable technologies. Hmm. And then the post-acute side is how do you actually start to take care of patients who, you know, needs uh, additional support, but don't really need to be in a hospital, but monitor them at home through a hospital at home or a skilled nursing facility at home or palliative care at home with appropriate technology. And then there's emerging tech that we work with, such as uh, VR, the use of VR for palliative care, for example. Hmm. There's studies that show the use of VR reduces opioid use post-hip and, and other surgeries, put them in a sensory journey. But VR can also be used for preoperative planning and uh, has been shown to reduce OR time and, 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 and uh, reduce complications by actually doing a simulation of the surgery using their data real time uh, prior to going in. It's also very important from an academic standpoint for teaching students and fellowships, fellows and residents. And then there's 3D printing of how do you actually start to, instead of having to wait for an orthotic uh, to be mm-hmm. sent to you in six to eight weeks, to be able to actually do a, a customized uh, foot orthotic or uh, any other body part orthotic real time and print it out with sensors in it and send patients home with it. So there's a, the, the, the umbrella is kind of wide, right, but essentially yeah. the goal is to, to elevate the consumer and provider experience by bringing these sort of new age technologies together. So, you know, using EHR data and building upon the, the infrastructure that IT has set forth. Right, and I would imagine COVID accelerated a good bit of that. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> COVID definitely accelerated uh, the work that I do. Typically, health systems, uh, you know, are n- don't really haven't really started thinking about the consumer retail type experience uh, to patients and mm-hmm. telehealth and in the in the level that we have now. Uh, if if you think about just Prisma, prior to COVID, uh, over a three year span of time, we did twenty two thousand virtual visits. Since COVID, we're about to hit a million. Right, and it's, so it's it's really accelerated use of digital health, being able to do as much as you can at home. What we find is not only the patients like it, it reduces the overall cost of care. Mm-hmm. And if you use this technology in the right way, you're able to get patients to their uh, improved outcomes faster. Meaning, right now, historic traditional medicine is you see you get healthcare when you're in a hospital, ER or a physician's office. Right. We don't know what happens in between those visits and we don't use predictability to wearable devices to understand when people are on the path to getting sick and treat them before they get sick um, and, and, and avoid that. For example, if someone has congestive heart failure, if you have a weight scale that they uh, got on every day and knew, knew their dry weight and then started to see their weight go up, then you can intervene early before they exacerbate for CHF and end up in the hospital on right. oxygen. And where they're going to do a, a diuresis there, you can do it uh, at home. Right. And so that's that's the overall goal is to to try to uh, keep people healthy and, and what we call proactive care versus mm-hmm. true sick care. And how does that interact with some of the, I guess, the big picture policy work that's gone on in the past? I know accountable care organizations and things like that have attempted to move systems to that kind of proactive population-based care. How, how, do, how do those two intersect? Yeah, because of uh, just overall movement of um, the industry to more value-based care versus fee-for-service care. And what that means is that we're driving for true value in the fact that we want to, you're going to get start getting paid for outcomes, not just every time a person walks in your office, you get right. paid. You know, healthcare has been interesting, right? I mean, you don't, in healthcare, you can get seen by a provider and get care in an ER or wherever, but if you don't have good outcome out of that, the system still gets paid. Right. The retail experience is you go buy a laptop, you don't like the laptop, you return the laptop and get your money back. Right. Well, the payers are always constantly paying. And here it's a deal between healthcare and the payers saying, hey guys, we're paying you X amount for services 
we want to see certain results. And so that value that the payers need to get, the value that the patient needs to get, there needs to be an agreement on that. So when you, as you look at uh, diabetes management or hypertension management, it's, it's truly getting people to their blood pressure goal or uh, sugar goal so that we know if you do that, it reduces your complications of blindness or heart disease, stroke, kidney failure, amputations, et cetera, stroke. So it is looking at those bigger picture of chronic diseases that we have uh, prevalent in South Carolina, like heart disease and stroke and diabetes and, and those type of items and saying, we're gonna pay you more and, and a larger share of your reimbursement is going to come from uh, improved outcomes versus just running the hamster wheel, see more patients, see more patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what's driving it. And when you start to use these technologies in a, in a more proactive way, like uh, remote patient monitoring, mm-hmm. that's the goal of it is to keep people out of the hospital, out of the ER, which costs a lot of money to the payers and overall healthcare industry and keep them at home and healthy and be proactive and try to do that and use this technology, which relatively, you know, if you think about it, some of this technology has been around for a while. I mean, telehealth has been, uh, been talked about since uh, 1879. Lance right. published an article about that. And, uh, um, you know, RPM, or remote patient monitoring, has been used by NASA since the Mercury Space Program. So mm-hmm. it, it's been around. It's been obviously enhanced and the technology has become more efficient and, and uh, you know, more accessible from right. a tech, uh, cost standpoint. But, you know, we've had this technology for a while. I mean, you, I'm sure some of you have seen Apollo 13 when Tom Hanks rips off all his sensors and the doctor sitting down on Earth is going, oh, my God, Tom Hanks died. Right. Is just because he removed all his sensors. So right. we have the ability to monitor. And what we have to use is big data to understand what that data means that tells us alerts of when someone's about to get sick, kind of like what we do for sepsis early alerting. Right. And so a lot of this seems to be trying to, I guess, enhance the spread or the the reach of healthcare providers because, you know, we're focused on rural here a lot. Obviously, rural folks have less of access. There's not providers there. They have to travel further, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, I mean, I'm a prime living example of that growing up in a tiny town of Hemingway, and I can tell you, going back there not too long ago, much hasn't changed there. I mean, luckily right. there's a good um, family practice there that's built and uh, all that, and the, but the closest hospital system is still King Street and, and McLeod. Right. Um, and so what you what you have to do is. Uh, being able to do as much as you can at home uh, that then allows you to get more care more real time than the person waiting because they can't get to X place uh, and their disease festering or getting worse. Um, I I think this is where, if you think about it, there's still 22% of the state that does not have internet access. A lot of those are in those rural areas. There has been a lot of money earmarked by the state uh, and there, there are folks that are working on Putting, pulling fiber to, uh, you know, rural areas in, in the state of South Carolina. So we can enable not only access to care virtually and uh, use some of these advanced tools of remote patient monitoring and automation, all these things, but also I think it's an opportunity where you can use internet to for workforce development because, you know, that is a pipe of information, a pipe of education, pipe of uh, uh, ability to do more uh, outside of what you can do when you don't have access to internet. And so I think that's going to play a large part as as we work through this. And luckily, Palmetto Health has partnered with the state of South Carolina on the broadband initiative uh, with Jim Stritzinger and others mm-hmm. uh, and working through some of those grants now. So how do you think that's going to, I guess, continue to evolve? I mean, we've seen with COVID mm-hmm. some of that already where some of these small family practices in Hemingway had to pivot and mm-hmm. do telehealth. But what, what do you think that's going to look like for rural going forward? Because it, we don't have to do it that way. We can do it kind of however we want in some ways, right? Right, exactly. I, I think it needs to be all about choice. And uh, um, what we want to do ideally is to passively monitor those people who need to be monitored mm-hmm. uh, as, as much as we can, elevating them to, uh, if, if it's something that can be handled virtually, great. But if it, it can't, then sending them to a brick and mortar location to be seen. 
uh, right. hands-on by a provider because you can't do everything obviously virtually. Even if you have a remote physical exam tool, sometimes you'll need other things. Yeah, you just need that uh, and, touch, and right? This is why one of the things we're trying to do with this uh, broadband initiative in rural areas is to set up a retail storefront uh, that not only is a place where people can come get education about chronic disease, but they can come and pick up their equipment that they may need mm -hmm. to enable virtual health at their home, mm -hmm. uh, get trained on how to use it, uh, do uh, large group classes, but also have a clinic on site that they can come and be seen. Or for example, if you find out in a rural area, oh my gosh, you have 20% of women here have not had a mammogram. Well, let's send a mobile mammogram truck there, get right. a mammogram done right. or vaccine outreach or, you know, things of that nature. And and so I think it's got to be a blend. It needs to be, the technology needs to be more of an enabler mm -hmm. uh, of getting better health than it needs to be limiting, right? Because you don't want to limit. The last thing we want to do is make sure that the technology that we're deploying is going to cause a, a larger social divide by right. causing a digital divide right. by the, the people who have tech and people who don't have tech. And, um, you know, so this is one of the things that's come out of COVID. You really need to pay attention to, to those social determinants of health that we don't really do a good job with. And one of those things that you have to think about is tech literacy and access to broadband, access mm -hmm. to hardware, smartphone. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks who really need this type of care don't have access. So how do we package that together, drop, you know, parachute it into the house and it's ready to go out of the box, you know, connected right. 5G or LTE tablet with wearable technology and someone comes in or calls them exactly how to use it. Right. Um, and so I, I think it's going to be a blend, um, but, you know, it's going it's to be interesting to see what happens with some of the uh, broadband growth. Uh, hopefully it grows mm -hmm. faster than um, just getting airtime of people getting lots of money and not actually deploying it. Yeah, that, that's the challenge right there. And I think one thing with rural that we always make sure we speak up about, you know, telehealth's great. All these digital interventions are wonderful, but we don't want it to be a replacement or a, you know, all you can just just do that. Because I think for a lot of folks, they need that touch. They need physical providers Absolutely. to do things. Um, and I yep. like you hearing saying that it's an extender and it's a it's a add on. It's a way to bridge that gap, not as a replacement for an in-person visit. Yeah. And I think you got to extend, you know, you maximize everyone in healthcare's licensure to be able to do what they can at the at the top of their license. Right. Because there's not enough primary care doctors to go around. It's just never with the population growth. Right. It's just not going to be able to keep up. So then, you know, how do you use advanced practice providers and others and deploy teams out to houses? Uh, or locations, centralized locations within rural areas like mm -hmm. that store, the uh, healthcare storefront, for example, where they come once a week or twice a week, uh, et cetera, uh, to actually see folks, um, you know, in person. Um, because, you know, a typical primary care doctor has 1,800, 2,000 people on their panel. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're never going to be able to take, make a true impact uh, on at the population level by seeing that number of patients, right? And right. Uh, so we have to start thinking about true population health using data and um, and team members to go out and do things that providers don't need to do. Uh, and, and so that you have folks who are able to concentrate on the really sick mm -hmm. and, and make sure that we're uh, actively monitoring them. How do you think we could get to the point where some of these technologies are more, I don't know what the word is, accommodating, acceptable, comfortable? For a lot of folks, because, you know, if you're talking to folks who, you know, older or just not, they don't have the experience with technology. And so maybe they don't trust it or they not comfortable using it or they don't feel like they get a great experience with that. Yeah. No. And, and that was actually even if you look at uh, uh, during the pandemic, uh, that held true because right. no one was truly ready for this explosion in telehealth. Um, prior to COVID, most uh, payers would not cover it. It was all out-of-pocket expenses. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at CMS, nearly uh, 40, 40 to 50% of Medicare ben beneficiaries uh, did a primary care visit via telehealth uh, versus compared to 0.1% utilization prior to the public health emergency. But that was more brought out of the fact that we shut down practices because we had to. And, and and health systems knew that we have to take care of these folks. We can't just 
let them uh, not be seen three, six months, 12 months later. Right. And what is the way to do that? And hence, the, with the under the uh, emergency use authorization, they lifted all the uh, previous restrictions on how to use telehealth and the payers started to also reimburse so that the, uh, the member, the health plan member can actually use their insurance to do a telehealth visit. So part of it is we've got to cut the, you know, break the walls down when it comes to the, the, the payers actually reimbursing health systems and not nickel and diming the patient for the out-of-pocket uh, mm-hmm. expenses to use these technologies, that's one. Mm-hmm. The second is we got to make the technology easy to use. The challenge right now is the fact that you have all these different things and they're still haven't come into a unified platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you're having to kind of stitch it together, mm-hmm. use this tool for this and this tool for that. And, and you know, we have seven different tools we use for seven different things, but they all are important to, for the overall patient journey. But we have to kind of um, connect them together through integrations. Right. Uh, so I hope the movement's going to be that we make it so seamless and easy that is turn on and use versus turn on and, and get support and, you know, connect it to something and integrate it to something mm-hmm. and it's complicated. So you have to make it so that the four-year-old could use it. And of course, you'll see a change in, in how the utilization is because the millennial population have outnumbered the baby boomer population. And, you know, those folks have grown up in this world right. uh, of on-demand and use in tech. Uh, it's like they're connected to it 24-7. Right. And so I think it's going to get easier as not only the technology curve is going to get better, but the usability uh, and tech literacy is is going to get better because of the population shift as well. Do you know of any, and I'm assuming the answer is yes to this, otherwise I wouldn't ask it, but what, what mm-hmm. companies are out there working on that? Isn't Apple working on that seamless full integration piece or Google, or I know Google bought Fitbit, I think, right? So... So the big the big ones out there that are working on this, I would say, are Teladoc and Amwell. They're the two largest telehealth companies that are out there, mm-hmm. um, but they do partner. So Amwell partnered with Google, and mm. Teladoc is partnered with Microsoft, and and so they're helping support some of that that seamlessness uh, to make it the uh, you know uh, you know easier to use. Um, but they also need to be device agnostic. So they've been working with right. Android devices and, uh, and Apple iOS devices so that, you know, you can use it on, on pretty much everything that's out there. And they need to have, again, the desktop experience for those who don't have a smartphone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that what you're going to find is that uh, with the help of uh, those being accelerators, that you'll start to see a unified platform or a single vert digital health OS, hopefully. What do you think are the possibilities going forward for, I guess, these kinds of extrusions into especially the underserved areas um, in alternative ways? You know, I know we've worked with libraries to try to integrate delivery in the library system with schools, with grocery stores, with those kinds of modalities. Yeah, you know, I think that's the key, right? I think you have to... um Part of the adoption, to improve adoption and, and true success of these initiatives is to partner uh, with your local leaders and, and organizations because uh, they know their community. Uh, and, and I think, as you said, patients, you know, people go to grocery stores. Uh, why not get seen there? You see mm-hmm. this movement already, right? You see Family Dollar announcing telehealth programs. You see right. uh, Walmart getting into it. Um, and, and so they're allowing people to get seen while they shop. Uh, and, and that makes it more convenient for, for the consumer. And, and so I think it needs to be integrated. One of the things that we learned very quickly during the pandemic was, you know, when they shut the schools down in 2020, um, you know, I was driving to um, my clinic and I drove past the school and I saw this massive line of cars. I'm like, wait a minute, why are these cars here? It's, uh, and it's around 11-ish, 11.30-ish. And um, I realized that these families were coming in to get lunch. Mm-hmm. And sometimes these are the only lunch that the kids would get. Right. Uh, you can't just shut that down. Right. Well, the, the other thing that they were doing, because I called the superintendent, uh, my wife connected me, and, uh, and he said that, well, you know, they also sit in the parking lot and get on the school Wi-Fi to download the school assignments on their Chromebooks. Right. And I'm like, wow, I didn't think of that because you think, you know, when you, when you have uh, – you just assume everyone had internet, but right. no, they don't. 
If, you know, if someone is struggling to get their only meal of the day coming to the school, is unlikely they have internet access at their house. Right. So we actually worked with our schools and said, look, can you open up the firewall so while the kid is in the parking lot with their family, uh, if they need to do a telehealth visit, we could do it off their Chromebook as well. And uh, so that was one of the projects that was really fulfilling because it allowed for us to uh, work with the schools and allow for that. But we're also even pre-COVID worked a lot with schools with uh, with uh, uh, you know with a whole bunch of telehealth cards at these schools. So if a child needed to be seen outside of a school nurse, that, that we can you know essentially beam in and see the child. So a lot of work uh, for pediatric uh, uh, portion of our uh, business was done that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, you have to start to think about how do you infuse this technology, wh- where people live, where they interact. I mean, church is another example. I yeah, think church a good is one. another option, I think, where people can also uh, get care, and, and they should get care. Uh, you also learned that Church is also a great place where you learn about uh, gaps in care. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I've seen patients where uh, they'll bring in this one pager that they had trucks out there that did their carotid ultrasound and did an EKG, checked their sugar, and it's like 99 bucks and they check all this stuff and they do it through uh, community outreach done uh, that's set up by the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's, I think all of that is on the table. What's gonna require partnerships, I think health systems have to start thinking beyond their walls. And they also need to partner with other health systems. You don't need to do it all yourself, and it's not a competition. Um, it's about taking care of the patients in South Carolina. I mean, we have 5.2 million people in the state of South Carolina. It's not that many people. Right. We have a large number of health systems right. in this state. I just think if we partner together, uh, we can make a huge impact to be better than 43rd in the nation when it comes to healthcare. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So I'm curious, you know, here we are towards the end of 2021. I'm not sure when this episode will actually come out. So that's where we are right now. But, you know, we're kind of emerging post-COVID a little bit. Uh, You know, I'm wondering, you know, you don't have to divulge industry secrets, but, you know, where do you think Prisma is going to go next? Um, Given what we've learned with COVID, given where we think we could make a great impact. Yeah, one, I would say the biggest is that understanding that what we can do at home and, mm-hmm. and what we can do by early detection uh, to um, reduce patients from going to the emergency room or, or other high cost centers. And, you know, it's important, uh, at least for us, as part of our strategic vision and, and roadmap is to look at the data. Mm-hmm. understand data better and, and you know one of the advantages that we have is that we're on one instance of epic and so we can look at data across our market share which is over 55 percent of the state right and 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 how can we look at that data to proactively close care gaps take care of patients through uh, multiple programs like we've initiated the remote patient monitoring program for hypertension and diabetes we'll be moving to chf We've, we've instituted uh, automated chatbot uh, that has done over 200,000 chats for COVID, mm-hmm. both for symptom checker and vaccine outreach. Um, we've, uh, we're expanding to other chats for uh, post-surgical and post-ER discharge, uh, which has, again, uh, the, just the COVID alone reduced our call volumes uh, about 40%. Mm. Um, and so we're starting to, you know, we're trying to, what we're doing here that I think is pretty unique uh, and others are even looking at us is how we've kind of really truly stitched it together into that digital continuum. Mm-hmm. Most people and most health system look at these things as point solutions for solve one, one problem instead of the larger, bigger picture and how these jigsaw puzzle pieces kind of fit together. And, uh, and but we have some really uh, we have a big project right now. It's called Project X that is really going to change how we deliver care in this state. Hmm. And uh, we have a large number of people working on it. And um, uh, you'll see more things coming your way. And a lot of it's going to be uh, outreach to rural areas. Yeah, that's great. And it kind of sounds like, too, that there is a emerging workforce out of this that, you know, you can now get into healthcare without touching a patient, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lots of the, there's a lot of new roles that have emerged in healthcare, right? So, um, folks who deal from the data side mm-hmm. or setting up algorithms and alerting, and uh, the Uber Healths of the world that now do transportation to and from practices. Um, 
just like you would easily order Uber for, for yourself to go to the airport or to a hotel. Patients, uh, based on scheduling and need, uh, again, those social determinants automatically sends an Uber to pick you up. Right. Um, and uh, so there, there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of folks that support the clinical uh, team, the workforce mm-hmm. behind the scenes. Uh, I think I saw somewhere that for every one provider, there are five people that support that provider. Yeah. Um, and, and on average, uh, that's not including just the people at the practice, your nurse, your front desk staff, your practice managers, but from an IT perspective, from a data perspective, from a finance pr- perspective, et cetera, uh, that actually helps support a provider. So um, there are absolutely a lot of opportunities uh, for getting into healthcare uh, mm-hmm. without having to go to medical school. I mean, right. you can make a large impact. Um, if you went into healthcare uh, information technology or digital health or the data side of things, um, so computer science would be one of the things that uh, I always try to tell people, even if you go to med school, get a degree <laughs> in computer science or, some, or in, in engineering because um, it'll always come useful for you because you're going to be in a, 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 essentially technology is going to be a large part of how you interact with patients moving forward. Right. Yeah. And I, I could see an argument where these alternatives you know, emerging workforce roles would alleviate the strain on the provider availability. You know, maybe we don't need yeah. as many primary care docs because now we have tele extenders yep. that we can do things with, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's optimizing again how we uh, and how we deliver care. It's about efficiency, and 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 we haven't been very efficient in healthcare delivery over the last hundred years, probably. Yeah, I think that's a that's a stark understatement. I think. Yeah. So what what do you think is holding us back right now? We you know, we talked a little bit about broadband and those kinds of things. What what else do you think is holding us back from emerging into this? Uh I would say um there's always that the the regular state and federal regulations that um we don't know what's going to happen after the emergency use authorization expires, right. which is going to be extended to the end of 22. Um, but there's also a lot of talk right now through CMS and others that they're going to continue this. Uh, mm-hmm. Seeing that the data of, of provider, ad, uh, I mean, patient adoption has been so high, um, it, it's uh, something that the, the regulators are looking at. They're also looking at outcome data to say, mm-hmm. oh, wow, we were able to take care of patients uh, at home and we actually saw an improvement in outcome and reducing costs, reduction in costs number of people hospitalized were less. Yeah. And um, that's the holy grail right there. Exactly. Right. And uh, there's there's multiple surveys. I'll read a few out that I actually put together here. Ninety three percent of patients say that they were more likely to use telemedicine to manage uh, manage their prescriptions. Eighty three percent of patients say they're more uh, they're likely to continue using telemedicine after COVID-19. And so there's multiple surveys from HHS, uh, from CDC and others, Harvard Business Review that show that the one in Harvard says in a survey of more than 1 million patients, 89% would recommend their provider after having had a telehealth visit. So there's the satisfaction of the visit as well that uh, provi- the patients feel that they're receiving. So I think I think the payers the, and, the, and the government regulators are, are listening to this. So that's one thing that we need to do is remove all the restrictions around telehealth and telemedicine, uh-huh. make it a permanent rule. Mm-hmm. Number two is that the technology needs to be more efficient into a singular health OS, as we talked about earlier. So it's easier to deploy technologies because right now I have to curate seven different things to really put a journey together. Right. And I can't go shop at one place and pick that up off right. the shelf it, it, it needs it's multiple different vendors I have to bring in to from scheduling to automation to enhance to regular video to asynchronous there's all kinds of things in between that i have to to purchase in order to enable this uh, seamless continuum so i like to see a unified platform and the cost has to come down Right. Uh, this this cannot be a lost leader in that. Oh, I'm paying. You know, I'm spending my digital health budgets. Uh, you know, I'm spending fifty million dollars every year on on these sort of tools. You have to make it so that it's you know more health systems can get it. I mean, think about it. Community hospital, they can't afford to get the stuff. Right. Uh, you know, you, you have to make it so that the the 
technology is accessible not only by the healthcare provider, but again, to keep the cost down so it's av uh, available and accessible by the patient. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I think that's another piece of it. And, and the last part I would just say is that culture, uh, we got to just change our culture of how uh, traditional medicine has been practiced. Mm -hmm. um, because as you know, cultural Trump strategy every day of the week. Right, right. <laughs> and so we have to make sure that we do this in a way from learning over the last 12 years of what disruption and un, un, unintended consequences that have come out of EHR deployment. Mm -hmm. What do we learn there? And can we not do that again by deploying digital health tools, right? So I think in order to build, um, you know, adoption and, and to build that culture of using these tools, we have to make sure that uh, we make it easy to use and it's not going to be disruptive, but again, uh, an enabler uh, uh, for using these technologies. Do you, do you think there's an element of trust as well there, both on the provider and the patient side? I can see different oh, yeah. groups trusting and not trusting it, right? Absolutely. We have to make sure we do a good job and uh, that uh, around uh, reassuring patients uh, that uh, that we have taken all our precautions regards to cybersecurity and the data that you're sharing is secure right. and is going into electronic health system. Right. It is going to be shared with the patient. Um, and so they can also look at what we've, uh, as part of the Cures Act, you know, we don't, uh, there's information blocking that um, is, uh, you know, we're reducing that. So we're sending information out as fast as possible. Open notes, we're sharing our notes with patients as well. So I think we have to, again, have this conversation about openness and trust, building that trust by understanding that the technology we're using is, is, uh, is secure, it's reliable, and the data that we're getting from wearable devices is also wearable and, less, less, and, and it's FDA approved and, and, and it's been tested for sensitivity and specificity on the data coming in. And so I think that uh, that's, again, more education that needs to go out because as you've known, uh, through this pandemic, there's a lot of folks that are not trusting of, uh, of these type of tools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned VR. Tell me a little bit more about that. How how in the world is that going to work in in this setting? Yeah, virtual reality is something that's uh, really taken off in healthcare in the last, I would say, two to three years. So it's still pretty new. Mm -hmm. uh, there are multiple uh, health systems, Mayo Clinic, Hogue Institute, and others that are using this for preoperative planning. So they can use CT, MRI images, real-time, reconstructed in a VR, 3D format that allows you to be seen, uh, allows you to kind of pre- plan a surgery. For example, if you have an aneurysm in the brain and you know you got to cut a hole through a skull to get to it, well, it'd be great to actually practice that before you go do it. Meaning, right. is this the best approach versus another approach? And not beyond looking at a 2D uh, picture that's uh, from a, a CT or an MRI image. And so what they're doing at Hogan's to, for example, is they're actually reconstructing uh, neurosurgical cases and they're going through and saying, okay, I'm gonna put the burr hole here versus there. Mm -hmm. And and then they're using the VR to fly the patient through their brain. So here's the issue, here's a tumor, here's the mm -hmm. aneurysm. We're going this this way because you see this little thing right here, that's this nerve, or you see this artery right here, we wanna avoid that and hence we're going in there. But they can also click on that tumor or aneurysm and then and hit print and mm -hmm. actually print out a 3D print, a one-to-one -one scale uh, part. Uh, that they can show the patient and again, use for teaching of what, uh, how they're going to approach removing or fixing this particular issue. Yeah, interesting. Um, what they've shown with this is that number one, they've reduced OR times, meaning they're being more efficient. They're not kind of looking around trying right. to figure out what they want to do. Strategize. They've, they've already strategized right. and they've actually simulated it. So yeah. the OR time has come down. Complications are reduced because you're not digging around, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. uh, longer period of time and you're not having a lot more loss of blood and right. risk of infection. And then third is the patient satisfaction has gone up because they're actually, the patients feel they have a really good understanding of what they're about to go through. Mm -hmm. uh, so talk about, you know, a patient consent on steroids. You really understand what's going on instead of reading about a generic uh, surgery on a, on a piece of paper like we give patients now. 
Um, so they feel more comfortable about the approach and why they're doing what they're doing. And, and so they've seen that. The other thing um, they're doing is uh, for 3D print is also uh, being able to print, uh, you know, the, the, the actual tumor and give it to the patient and they frame it and all these kinds of things. And <laughs> yeah. So again, it's just part of the patient experience side. Uh, VR can be used for many things. So that's one example is where it's using surgery, but it's also being used uh, post-operatively. So they, put, they have put patients on what we call sensory journeys uh, post-hip, post-knee, certain orthopedic surgeries. And what they've seen is uh, less uh, push of the PCA pump for morphine and opioids uh, post-operatively. Uh, and because you're being put in a sensory journey to do other things, it's been used for stroke patients uh, where you're essentially using hand-eye coordination to move your head around or your finger to chase a dragon around virtually. Uh, again, being able to do something uh, that is more immersive Palliative care, we're doing something with them to put patients um, in a sensory journey. Hey, you've never been to Italy before? Let's put you in Italy. Let's right. have you uh, take you away from your surroundings of being in a hospital or at home and, and put you somewhere you really would rather be. Um, so right. again, patient satisfaction and comfort care. So there's lots of use cases. One of the, the other ones is to teach patients uh, true education before they go home. For example, imagine a diabetic patient, um, uh, you go in, you virtualize Publix and you have them, you give them a hundred virtual dollars and you have them go shop because everything in, in Publix and everything is, has a UPC code. So you can see what the content is and you can see patterns of where they would, what they would shop. And then you start to go, you start to, you ding them every time they buy something bad for a diabetic and you give them positive reinforcement for every time they buy something good. So gamification and, and adding a, you know, things where if you do well and you do shop well, you get a coupon to Publix uh, or mm -hmm. something like that. So there's lots of opportunity for VR and then the whole academic piece, Kevin, there's a whole bunch you could do there with um, interviewing and, uh, and that, uh, you know, putting students in a very hostile situation virtually. Right, the training, uh, yeah. Uh, or, or learning anatomy or understanding biochemistry better than reading it in a book. Right. Uh, and then, of course, behavioral health, huge opportunity mm -hmm. where you can use VR for behavioral health, for anxiety and phobias. So we've talked a good bit about some of the challenges with rural, you know, like broadband and access and those kinds of things. But, you know, I want to know from your perspective, Nick, what you think is going well in rural? What is what is good about rural South Carolina right now? I think the best thing is that we're talking about it. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things that people don't talk about enough and that there are truly initiatives uh, at the state uh, and federal level to um, you know, improve access to broadband mm -hmm. and those initiatives that no one used to talk about. No one wanted to invest $400 million in put it, pushing, pulling fiber to rural areas. Right. Um, and, and, but then now they are, because they understand how important it is to education, workforce development, access to healthcare. Um, and and um, there's, they also look at the data and say, hey, you know, people who don't have internet access don't do as well in, in school. They mm -hmm. don't uh, get uh, high paying jobs, things mm -hmm. of that nature. And hence, eventually they're gonna continue to be self-pay or Medicaid patients who are not gonna get, or are gonna continuously uh, not do well. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think information is important. Uh, I think that's one good thing that's happening is that we're talking about it, we're investing in it and I think that health systems are also looking at building practices in rural areas. I know Prisma is, and mm -hmm. other health systems are. Uh, and you see this consolidation overall, these, these, these hospitals and communities that could not afford to stay uh, alive anymore uh, and keep the lights on are now being consolidated and purchased by other uh, bigger hospitals mm -hmm. to support that rural mission. So I, I'm, I'm glad to see that happening across South Carolina as well. Yeah, as long as they keep them open, because that's also a trend. Well, they yeah. buy well, them one up thing and I've close them. So we, would, we don't want that to happen. Exactly. We don't want that to happen. But one other thing I forgot to mention, you know, before COVID, we had 4% uh, unemployment. It's the lowest unemployment rate in the state of South Carolina. And mm -hmm. we have a large number of businesses now that are uh, being built in rural areas. So mm -hmm. you start to see, again, bigger footprints. You have a big... Uh, company come in, then you start to see bigger infrastructure come in. So mm -hmm. I'm glad that the state is doing that because we're able to see uh, that's making a large impact. Yeah. And I'm excited to see where it goes as well. Um, final question that I ask everybody is how you personally would define rural to somebody who isn't sure what it is. 
Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I guess I hearken back to when I think of rural, I think of my hometown of Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of a town that is very close-knit uh, with a small population. Um, and, you know, you have to travel to get most of the services there. Uh, mm. You know, it, it, this is going to sound trivial, but it's like me driving uh, when I was there 30 miles to go watch a movie because there's no movie theater there right. uh, or driving 20 miles to go get a pizza because there's no pizza hut there. Right. Uh, so I think rural for me is about accessibility uh, and services uh, is how I would explain it. Most people like for us living in Columbia or any major city, we can we don't have that problem. We can go get uh, and have access to services, uh, retail, non-retail, healthcare, right. you name it, you have access to it. But in rural, you're very limited. You have to you have to actually plan ahead mm-hmm. to get those services. Uh, you can't just go think of it and get it the next day. You can't just go. I need to go to Best Buy and go get something today. I can go get it. You have to plan ahead and you have to invest time in order to receive those services and goods. And and so I think what we have to start to do is um, uh, again, how do we make rural feel like a city by uh, connecting them uh, to the rest of the world with internet and other uh, technologies. Yeah, no, I think those are, those are great points. So thank you for joining us today. This has been a really fascinating talk and introduction to technology and digital and the growing footprint. And I'm really excited to see how this develops over the coming years and hopefully it'll, it'll take off and we'll change some things here. Thanks Karen. It was great having this conversation with you. And so that's all we have for today. Uh, Please uh, check our show notes for more information about Dr. Patel and his work and uh, anything else that we mentioned in there. We'll put a link in the show notes to it and stay tuned for more episodes coming out soon. And if you like what you've heard, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating because that's the best kind. And if you have ideas for other guests you'd like to hear on our program, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And that's all for today. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Growing Rural Podcast. If you found the content valuable, please leave a rating on iTunes or Spotify so others can find us. For more information, please visit our website at sc.edu forward slash rural healthcare or follow us on Twitter at sc underscore crph. This was recorded at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Columbia. It is edited and produced by Sean Riffle. Y'all take care.